Hi guys, it's Andy McDonald, physio and strength and conditioning coach, and welcome to the Informed Performance Podcast. On today's show, I have Bradley Skeynes, a physio working in Formula One for Red Bull Racing, who also consults to British gymnastics and has his own private practice. In this episode with Bradley, he'll be giving us an in-depth insight into the role of a physio working with Formula One drivers, and within this, we'll be chatting about the driver's neck from a physical preparation standpoint, followed lastly by discussing the timing or risk the reward of manual therapy close to competition time. This episode of the Informed Performance podcast has been sponsored by Vald Performance, makers of Forstex, the world's fastest, easiest and most powerful dual force plate system. Forstex can help you to analyse neuromuscular strength, performance and imbalances in your athletes. And they have an incredibly simple setup where the software can automatically detect over 15 force plate tests and analyse them with a single click. Hang around at the end of today's conversation for the Vald Performance Education segment, where today we'll be focusing on the eccentric utilisation ratio. But first, and without further ado, here is the conversation between myself and Bradley Skeynes. Brad, welcome to the show. I know you're in Monaco, so I'm a little bit envious at this time of recording today. Yes, it's uh, very nice weather out here, and uh, uh, I'm just sat looking over the harbour at the moment. Um, yeah, that, that, I think as far as guest locations have been, I think you're the winner at the moment <laughs> out of everybody that we've had. Yeah, I'll take that. Just to create some context, would you be able to uh, bring guests that might not have come across you? Can you bring them up to speed and uh, give a little bit of information about your background and just kind of bring them forwards to the current day? Yeah, sure. I, I, I suppose, um, first of all, thanks for having me on uh, on the episode. Um, great podcast that you've uh, you've got going on here. Um, definitely been an avid listener over the last, uh, last couple of months. Um, but yeah, so uh, my background is... Uh, um, as a sports scientist initially, um, graduated from Loughborough University many years ago, uh, before then going on to do my pre-registration master's in physiotherapy. Um, I was quite fortunate uh, in a time where jobs were hard to come by um, to um, get a, a good junior physio um, job in a, a large uh, acute NHS hospital, uh, which was cool, a um, lot of fun, taught me a lot. Um, within that, you kind of work on going around different different departments. Um, uh, but my my heart was always with uh, with sport, and and from there I took a job with um, Southland Football Club, who are a professional football team in England. Um, they were in League Two at the time. Um, spent a couple of seasons there before uh, then moving back to the NHS as in a specialist musculoskeletal role. Uh, as well as taking a part-time role with the British basketball team. Um, and then from there, kind of built up private practice work in, in both London and, and where I live in Chelmsford. Um, left the NHS um, and then moved from the British basketball team to the British gymnastics team, uh, where I still am currently. Um, and then more recently took a role um, in Formula One. Now I'm sort of very fortunate now to work as a, a physio and a performance coach um, with Max Verstappen and, and the Red Bull Racing team, uh, as well as juggling a bit of clinical work and um, still working or supporting um, four of the athletes from the British Gymnastics team um, for hopefully what will be Tokyo next year. 
Very interesting uh, mix of sports. I can't imagine um, when you set off on your physio journey that you you probably thought you were going to be an F1. It's quite you've had an interesting sort of mix of sports there. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, yeah, I never thought I'd be an F1. Never thought I'd be in gymnastics. Um, football at the time for me, sort of way back when, was was the uh, the sport of choice. Um, again, I was lucky lucky to be in there for a little while. But um, yeah, no, it's been uh, it's been an interesting journey. It's been a fun journey, and uh, yeah, no, I consider myself very lucky now. Can you kind of sum up how you, I guess, how you split your time? I'd, I'd normally ask people what their current role is, but obviously you've got a few things going on. Can you kind of sum up how you how you divide your time and what your current roles involve in their different places? Yeah, definitely. So I, my main role is within F1 um, as a, as a performance coach to Max. Um, so. My first commitment comes with him. Um, so if we're traveling, I'll be traveling with him. If we're working through pre-season, I'll spend majority of my time in Monaco. Um, but sort of traveling to and from each week. And then when I'm back in the UK, I might get uh, a couple of um, days in clinic, uh, which I might split sort of half a day in uh, in private practice and then half a day down at the uh, gymnastics centre, um, catching up with, with some of the gymnasts. Um, so, yeah, that's that's kind of how my, my weeks look. Obviously, at the moment, it's been quite different, um, but we're fortunate to be sort of getting back to it now. Um, so the majority of my weeks over the next few weeks will be um, ramping up our second pre-season um, in what will hopefully be preparation for um, the first F1 race in, in in about six weeks time and you know I think some of the listeners would have heard uh, Rob Madden speak very early on in the podcast who does a little bit of work in F1 but in case people haven't heard that one and this is their their first F1 episode if you like from us can you are you able to take them through a bit of a you can you go and kind of unpackage what it involves in terms of what you do with uh, with Max or um, you know what does F one look like as a sport to be a clinician in? Yeah, sure. Um, I, I think this is always an interesting topic because um, uh, I guess there's always been almost a negative viewpoint on on, on racing drivers uh, per se. Um, they they get in a car and they drive a car, um, so maybe they're not of the, the athletic population uh, and I still get these comments now when when people find out sort of what I do um, and, oh what, what do they need you for um, but uh, yeah no as soon as we sort of get into the, the physical demands they, they sort of soon soon realize so um, I, I tend to split it up into into sort of three key areas there's there's an endurance aspect to, to racing there's certainly a strength aspect which I'm, I'm sure we'll dive into um, and, there, and there's a cognitive aspect as well. But uh, if we if we take the racing environment, um, you've you've got drivers who are travelling three hundred plus kilometres an hour, um, which is creating um, g forces of three to five times their body weight. Um, they're being exposed to to very high temperatures. Um, they've got uh, carbon monoxide exposure. They've got noise exposure, vibration, um, all of which result in um, elevated heart rates, um, increased core temperatures and, and subsequently muscle fatigue. Um, and then alongside having to put up with those physical demands, they then have demanding cognitive loads in that they need to 
maintain um, sort of pressing different buttons on the, on the steering wheel, being in contact with their their race engineers who are talking over the, the mic to them, and then deciding obviously what they're going to do on uh, on track and, and make those high stakes decisions um, on on the track as well. Um, because if they don't, then that could obviously one result in, in poor performance, but also there's a, a potential for harm to, to themselves or other drivers as well. Um, so th- there's kind of a lot going on um, uh, within there rather than just uh, getting in a car as, uh, as many think. <laughs> <laughs> and how do you act? H- how can you be effective in your role? I know it's a bit of a fluffy question, but in terms of like what you've learned, I guess, from start to finish working in the sport, how, how can you be uh, the most effective practitioner? yeah it's um uh i think being a good generalist uh, I'm, I'm sure that's been been mentioned before um it's it's quite a nice role for me because most of my career has been in in the physiotherapy domain and here i get to to dip and dive into into some of my other passions such as sort of the strength and conditioning side of things and um and, and recovery as well so we we take a real sort of uh overall look uh, an approach to, to uh, managing the driver um, from managing their training loads and, and the specifics of training um, any obviously any injuries or anything like that that might might pop up um, we uh, so I suppose I should say I'm, I'm, I'm sort of a small part of a bigger team um, I, I uh, am contracted into Formula One from a company called Hinter Performance which you uh, had Rob on there, and I think also Pete as well uh, on one of your podcasts, Pete McKnight. Um, so we're kind of looking after the driver. We have a number of specialists behind us as well. So we're we're the day to day looking after, but we're we're managing their uh, training, their nutrition, their recovery, their sleep, any injuries that crop up, all the fitness testing. Um, and then when it comes to race weekend, our, our roles look very different again. Uh, and we almost become a bit of a, a schedule manager um, as well as getting them um, physically and mentally prepared for, for, for the race ahead as well. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's an interesting role. There's lots of different aspects to it. Um, but uh, um, it, it's quite nice to sort of look after that, that one individual as well. Yeah, and when we had when I had Rob on, he was saying how important it is to be very adaptive to to what you're able to do professionally, um, and and I guess personally in terms of working with the driver closely. Yes, yeah, we uh, probably over the course of the season, it's probably the person I spend most of my time with in in, in the year. Um, just just don't tell my wife that. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, recently you wrote an article um, titled The Driver's Neck, which uh, I'll, I'll put in the show notes as a link for guests, uh, for guests, for listeners to find. And um, and they can check it out if they want to after hearing this episode. It's uh, it's really interesting, I think. And it's a really well uh, written insight into the athletic demands placed upon an F1 driver's neck. Um, so, you know, firstly, good job. But also let's get stuck into that as a as a topic. Um for context, can you maybe outline maybe the the physical demands that uh, F one drivers are faced with specifically at the neck? If you can kind of um, break that down for people. Yeah, the um, the neck is probably um, 
it's the key area uh, for fear for, a, for an F1 driver. Um, you speak to any F1 driver and uh, they'll tell you that if they have a problem with their neck, then their racing is is as good as done, whether it be for that that race or, or um, a few races. Um, there's, a, there's a nice quote, actually. I'm, I'm going to steal this from um, uh, the Science of Motorsport book, but it comes from uh, Mark Webber where um, he talks about in, in one race how he saw Jensen Button using his um, thumb to hold his head up. He was he was that fatigued, and at that point, he knew he'd won the race. He knew Button wouldn't be a, be a threat anymore to him. Um, so, in terms of the physical demands, um, we so drivers experience um, forces that are somewhere in the region of three to five um, g's of force, gravitational force. Um, so, I guess to put that uh, a little bit more practically, um, that's three to five times sort of body weight if the head weighs approximately five kilograms and a driver's helmet approximately two kilograms and we take a a force of three g's on on the head and neck that would be um 21 kilos kilograms of force through through the neck that they would have to um tolerate uh this this can obviously vary track to track um and and crashes cause much much greater g-force as well That, that can sometimes be above 10 g's um, and um, I guess to put it in perspective of a track, uh, if we take Suzuka track, which is um, uh, in Japan, and it's a fast and technical track with a lot of heavy braking, um, they have that three Gs of lateral force for 40% of the race. So we're, we're talking about 30 minutes of 21 kilograms of force going through the uh, going through the head, which is quite a lot. Um, the Main stresses come from that deceleration phase and also the cornering. When a driver accelerates, the head uh, will feel like it's being forced backwards. And in, in the car, they've got the, the back support for the head. But when they're braking, um, the uh, neck will try and decelerate at the same time as the driver's body. Uh, and in this direction, there is no support from the car. So the posterior neck musculature will, will need to contract with sufficient force to um, keep that position, otherwise the driver's head will be forced uh, forwards and down, which will of course compromise their their vision um, and ultimately performance. Um, and then when they're going around a corner, they will feel like they're being pushed away from the corner. Um, and and this is getting more and more. The cars are getting quicker every uh, every year. Uh, a lot of money goes into the aerodynamic design of the car, which. Um, creates greater downforce, um, basically allows the, the car to corner um, at much higher velocities, which, which increases, the, um, increases the G-force. Um, so again, as they're cornering, they'll need to recruit the um, neck uh, side flexors on the same side to stop that head from being pushed away from the corner. Um, and if they can't support that position, then their head, eye and hand-eye coordination is uh, is going to be disrupted. They won't be able to focus on their specific reference points, which again is going to negatively impact performance, lap times, um, and um, further in if, it, if it's severe, obviously yeah, um, there, there's safety issues to that as well. Yeah. Most clinicians in a general sense are used to seeing whiplash, radiculopathies, and more common clinical presentations of neck pain. Um, and 
people outside of combat or contact sports like rugby may have had less exposure to the neck in an athletic context, uh, regardless of whether you're a clinical practitioner or an S&C or coaching type practitioner. Beyond how you would assess the neck in a traditional orthopedic way, how how do you go about assessing the neck athletically for the task demands of F1? I know you're talking a lot about force, so obviously it's going to be strength, but I'm interested to know kind of within that, um, how, how do you go about assessing the neck athletically? Yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of um, looking at those numbers and, and sort of matching them up with what can, can the driver achieve in, in assessment and in training. Um, we do have some normative values. Um, I won't go fully into those as um, that's some stuff that sort of we as a company have developed from the drivers we, we work with. Um, but but just as an example, we, we look at something like um, um, neck extension um, to be in excess of 40 kilograms. Um, so they're having to, to shift that sort of weight in, in testing. How do we test it? Um, there are a few methods. Um, there is uh, one UK-based physio who uh, used to work in F1. I don't think he does anymore. Um, Don Gavra, who, who developed a sort of um, kinetic testing system with a head harness where he could um, um, get a lot loads of uh, uh, different different scores for um, strength of the, the head, and we could then match that up to, to the normative values. Um, for me, I'm, I've always been a big fan of, of, a, of a simple approach. Um, I, I always carry a, a crane scale with me to test strength of various different limbs, much cheaper version than the handheld dynamometry. <laughs> um, but, but a crane scale actually works really nicely um, in, uh, for neck testing. So uh, pretty much all, all drivers will have uh, a head harness or a neck harness for their training. So you can uh, you can hook that head harness up to a crane scale, or I think some of the other guys have used like a uh, like a suitcase weighing scale. Um, fine if it goes up heavy enough, and then so attach that to one end of the head harness, um, other end to to just a, a normal handle you might use on a, on a weight machine, and then you're looking to test isometric force, um, and we'll do that in flexion, extension, and right and left um, side flexion. Driver has to maintain the head position. You give them a few seconds to reach um, peak, and then just take the reading off of the uh, off of the scale. Um, it's uh, and it's a nice repeatable way, nice easy repeatable way as well, which we can test at different different stages. Should um, should we need to, gives us a, a good data in pre season for uh, if they do get injured as well. Um, there are a couple of other other methods you can look at doing sort of neck bridges, neck bridge time. Um, well, that's a bit harder to, to compare data as there are lots of sort of different ways and hacks of how people might might do that. But again, if you haven't got the equipment, it's a, a nice, easy method to sort of literally um, track someone um, as an N equals one as well. It can be, can be quite useful. Is there, I know you, you mentioned at the start, the kind of gatherer systems, is there, you know, in other sports and other injuries or body parts, people would be very familiar with, um, sort of peak force tests using uh, force plates, and of course, rate of force development tests. Is is rate of force rate of force development kind of like a useful metric in terms of maybe emergency situations in F one, in terms of how how quick they can create and recruit the neck musculature? 
Yeah, it's interesting. It's um, and and there's a real this kind of highlights the the big dearth of, uh, of of sort of literature and research in in this area, and and it would be a cool thing to look at. Um, it's not something that's been tested, um, but it is something actually we we look at when we start talking about training the neck, um, because with um, the acceleration deceleration forces the um, rate of force is comes on a lot quicker, whereas with the, the cornering, it's it's slower, but then they have a larger volume of work because it, it stays at that peak for, um, for, for much higher. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it would be, uh, it'd be an interesting thing to, to test and, uh, and, and look at in the future. Yeah, I guess like in those situations, the, the faster somebody can recruit their neck musculature and stabilise their head, the... From, I guess from a tactical standpoint, it, it allows them to stabilise the head and vision um, efficiently for the car and the race itself. Yeah, yeah. And and that will, will come in, will be really important in, in probably the the real important parts of a race as well, you know, through overtaking or defending position um, when, when it's needed the most. I'm going to apologise in advance for my next question because it's it's a very mean one, but, um, <laughs> you know, the neck uh, is not as delicate a structure as some common misconceptions might might be from people. Um, and we know that the loads it's exposed to kind of illustrates this um, in terms of what it, what, it, what it can do in sport. But in a crude sort of sense, the neck region can get pretty cranky and irritable, to say the least. Um, as a bit of a hypothetical case uh, for an individual athlete, be that you know motorsport or boxing, um, doesn't matter, where reports of neck pain might be quite compromising to their high-profile event that's about to begin. Let's say you've ruled out uh, anything sinister or compromising in terms of uh, continuing particip- participation being in place, but there's some symptoms, and you know the reality is that the athlete or the patient in this situation is going to have some expectation for you to try and provide some immediate relief so that they can perform optimally in the event that's about to follow. Um, You know, you've got to be mindful in this situation as a clinician that there's a risk or reward for your intervention um, in terms of whether it makes them better or worse. And so your selection of what you do is is both critical and sensitive to their performance. Um, So this is a horrible question, but (laughs) <laughs> you know, have you have you faced these kind of situations before? And, and obviously, you don't breach confidentiality. But how do you approach these situations? And kind of how do you help form your own decision in that situation where it's it's pretty critical? Yeah, I think um, first off, the neck can definitely get very cranky. <laughs> I film uh, film some uh, uh, videos for, for the article you mentioned earlier, and uh, after doing them, I had neck pain for about a week. Um, <laughs> So uh, another reminder that these guys' uh, necks are extremely strong. Um, but, yeah, certainly um, uh, painful neck or, or across any sport, really, when, when we have uh, an injury where it's not sinister and um, that athlete then needs to, to go out and, and compete. Um, I think, yeah, you, you need to weigh up risk-reward um, in Formula 1 with it being, uh, I guess, a relatively individual sport in terms of the driver's championship. Um, as long as we are safe, um, then if we can reduce the pain in, in some way, um, the reward will, will be worth worth the risk. Um, obviously, we have to take into account safety on, on the track as well. Is, is the pain or, or fatigue going to impair the performance to a point where it makes it 
makes it unsafe. Um, and we might have to look at the calendar as well, um, make a call on if we're on, on uh, back-to-back race trips or there's back-to-back competitions or events in, in other sports or games as such. Um, is there a better time to, to rest it or is there a better time to risk it and um, and, and, and see how it is for, for the next next race? That might be even more more relevant this year as we head into uncharted scheduling territory. Um, if, if the season does get underway um, post-COVID-19, then um, it's very likely that we might see something like 10 races in 13, 14 weeks and a few triple headers. So the physical demands will be extreme and, and that pressure to recover and stay fit and fresh, sort of high, high on the agenda. Um, from a um, pain relief perspective, um, coming from a physiotherapy background, um, do no harm first. Um, I think we're we're very aware, aware in in uh, in the profession these days as to what things like uh, manual therapy or other adjuncts like acupuncture or taping um, provide. They um, sort of neuromodulatory um, pain reducers uh, rather than sort of any tissue changes that that we once maybe thought um, and. Um, for me, if I if I had my driver, it was due to to race on a Sunday, and where we now were on Friday, and and he had neck pain. We and and we had cleared all the sinister uh, pathology. There was no uh, great risk. We we would try everything we can just to reduce that pain down. Um, so that might involve a bit of manual therapy. We might try a bit of acupuncture. Um, we'd take it up in stages. You, you don't want to dive in and deep sports tissue massage or, or uh, different manipulations and mobilizations of, of joints and, and like you say, cause more pain, but <clears throat> continually testing. Um, does the objective measure change? Does the subjective measure change? If it doesn't, then you might um, progress to maybe something that's a little more and, and so on and so forth. Have you had to kind of um, almost, you know, sort of pilot your treatments on an athlete in the sense that, you different manual therapy uh, approaches might elicit a different response you know you've there's going to be a neuro a neuromodulator effect and we could be looking at um uh, a change in how the athlete feels from kind of like a parasympathetic sympathetic way you know you, what you don't want to do is is do a treatment on them that then leaves them feeling um overly relaxed and lethargic because um they need to be uh, incredibly sharp in what they're about to do have you had to kind of ever um, almost test the reaction of how they respond to different treatments so that if you do end up in that situation, you can, you know how they're going to respond to, you know, say a needle versus um, uh, some more hand-delivered manual therapy. Yeah, it's a, it's a good point, actually. Um, and, and I guess the answer is no um, in terms of testing specifically for that. But I think the more time you spend with people, you kind of get a feel for what works for them. Um, and... Uh, with, with the athletes that, that I've worked with and, and, and for those in the past that have always been with them for, for, for quite a while that we kind of work out what, what works for them. Um, the other thing is, is is just asking the athlete as well. So if, if, if we were to arrive in a, a situation where, um, I don't know, I came in 
to, to Max's program a week before the first race, let's say, um, and, and we had no opportunity to test any of that, that stuff or, or spend time together in, in the past, then, you know, what works for you, um, I think, is a, is a really, really key question. You make a really good point. I think it what, what you're saying as well really relates to um, what Gordon Bosworth said when he was recently on the podcast about kind of, you know, when you're at the af- athlete's event. And in his case, he was talking about Olympic events, but the it's getting to know the athlete, isn't it? And he was very much talking about if the athlete before the race asks him to do a uh, a particular approach of manual therapy, then... As long as, like you said, it's not going to do any harm and uh, he can you know, safely reason it and justify it. In that moment, you want to keep the athlete happy and calm. And if, if that's what they believe they need, then um, uh, that is essentially what they need in that moment in time to, to actually mentally be in the right place ahead of the event. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and it's certainly something that that I'm a big fan of and, and have been learning as well over over the past few months because uh, Max has been long in, in Formula One longer than me. He knows what he needs to do to be ready to race. Um, and I, I'm hopefully a, a small part helping him along the way to, to a successful performance. Um, and yeah, you don't want to come steaming in with uh, with what you think might help um, when, when it doesn't. And, you know... I'm aware that F1 doesn't allow drivers to wear um, sensors. Sorry, this is a bit of a, a bit of a different topic, but I know F1 doesn't allow drivers to wear sensors, or at least the teams don't have access to any of the, the data that is collected on their bodies during a race. Um, which, from a physiological understanding and, and load management perspective, creates a bit of a blind spot. Uh, you know, from what you've been able to use, uh, collect, and understand, is there? I guess is there metrics that you particularly value, and I'm aware you might have to be a little bit sensitive around this topic. But um, of what you can collect, what do you kind of see value in? Yeah, there's um, there's not. Yeah, you're right. There's not a lot of objective data that we that we can around a uh, collect around a, a race weekend. Um, it's it's against the safety restrictions to put anything on the driver or in the car. Um, and then even then, there's a, uh, even a few milligrams of weight. Um, there, there will then be an issue with the engineers as well because they don't want that weight in the car. <laughs> um, so there's not too much. Um, there are, uh, the drivers do have some heart rate sensors in their, in their gloves, um, but that information stays with the F. IA, uh, which is um, F1's governing body, um, and, and we don't have access to, to that at this current moment. Um, hopefully, that'll be something we work on in, in the future. They use it for um, uh, if a driver was to have a crash, they can uh, monitor um, their vitals in time whilst uh, the doctor's on the way to um, to, to the car. Um, so, I guess we we rely a lot on. Um, on subjective data to, to monitor um, load, um, uh, simple measures such as RPE, both for um, training sessions, but also um, time in the car and, and simulator days and um, all the other things that will, will add to to a driver's uh, driver's load, which which are often forgotten. You kind of think, okay, um, training how long, what's the RPE, okay, we've got a loading score for that, 
but if they're spending eight hours in a in a simulator as well there's there's a fair physical and cognitive um strain for for them for that as well um and um when we get the the practice sessions as well and they're out in the formula one car um uh, that's probably more load than they'll, they'll get through 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 training as well so um taking taking scores for for that as well is, is something we we put a lot of value in um uh, we we monitor quite a few sort of like well-being questions as well um uh, mostly daily um we can look at some objective measures um as a lot of sports do um like simple things like grip strength or a counter movement jump um just to give us an indication of where they are on on that day um in terms of in terms of performance um but I, I and i think for me especially coming from a physio background as well most most of my stock for for that certainly at the moment until we've maybe got access to more data just just sits within those um sort of subjective evaluations um uh, sometimes there's nothing more powerful than just uh you know how are you doing today and, and how did you sleep today um and uh, uh and going from there are you allowed when you're when it's not a race weekend and you're back at the headquarters or factory? Are you allowed to do what you want then from a testing standpoint um, with the drivers? Yeah, we are, but the drivers, unfortunately, when they're not racing, then they're never in a Formula One car um, because there's there's restrictions on the amount of time that um, you can test the actual car itself. So we we can never um, replicate the the environment basically we can never replicate the same forces um drivers in pre-season um they get uh they, they tend to do a filming day where they get to do i think it's like a hundred kilometers so which works out like 30 laps or something um and then we get into pre-season testing which is um six days across two weeks um in barcelona um, where they do a ton of laps, which is is awesome for the conditioning, but again, you can't have anything in in the car at that stage. Um, and and I guess going back to your earlier question, that's where we kind of really hone down on what works best for the driver for ready for ready for the season. But um, yeah, uh, in terms of that, uh, the only other testing we do is is our physical tests. Um, uh, you know, simple ones of uh, repetition max for sort of squatting, chest press, and, and and just general strength markers. It's interesting, isn't it? I think it's quite paradoxical because the uh, common the common perception of F one is this you know high tech pit lanes and technology everywhere. But uh, from a physical standpoint, you're you're very reliant on kind of qualitative uh, methods to appraise the sport and the athletes. So it's quite, I guess, it's a really interesting example where. Yes, communication is always important, but I guess in your situation, really understanding the athlete and their answers around the details that you want for their physical preparation is 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 incredibly critical. Yeah, no, it is, and 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 I guess it's something that really surprised me coming into the sport as well because you're you're right, it's, it's extremely high tech, and and what the mechanics and engineers do is is unbelievable, really. And you should see the amount of data they've got on on the car. Um, it, it's crazy, but then yeah, we we've got a real sort of uh, uh, lack of data and, and and literature to support as well, and and, and information on on the drivers. Um, uh, but yeah, and and that brings me to to, to another quote I saw from uh, from Frank Williams actually. So he was the head of the, the Williams team team, and he was talking about 
Ayrton Senna, which may be one of the best racing drivers of all time. And uh, he was talking about, well, that's, that is the best equipment you can put in a car or put in the machine. Um, but yeah, not, not, a lot of, uh, not a lot of data on that. I think it's slowly improving. Um, certainly the guys at Hinsa are starting to produce more research. And um, uh, the new book I mentioned um, earlier, Science and Motorsports, that came out last year, which kind of was a real nice review of all the current literature um but uh and we we can draw a little bit of data from from other um motorsport environments as well they're allowed to do a little bit more testing in um indycar and nascar out in uh, out in the states um albeit they're, they're closed cockpit cars so it's not always sort of transferable um but yeah it's uh yeah quite surprising I think it's interesting though, because I think, you know, whether you're a, a physio or performance or strength positioning coach, you're a knowledge worker, but, um, especially clinically, you're, you're a problem solver. So I guess the fact that you can't have all the, um, analysis and data that you want about the driver equally is probably in, it's interesting, isn't it? It probably maintains your, uh, spark for problem solving because you've got to think differently and, uh, uh, be creative a little bit mentally. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. A bit creative and, and a bit in the unknown as well. Uh, which which is always fun um and uh yeah no it's uh it certainly makes it interesting and where's the best place for people to follow you as the kind of the next season unfolds if people want to feel jealous about your work locations and travel <laughs> so uh i'm probably most uh most relevant on instagram these days uh, i used to be twitter but uh i've uh attracted to instagram a bit more so um yeah at physio brad on uh, on instagram and uh yeah, if uh, if the season gets underway, there'll certainly be uh, plenty of uh, images of uh, nice places. <laughs> <laughs> well, Brad, I thank you very much for coming on. I, I mean, I find F1 interesting anyway, but I think especially when you hear it from somebody like yourself who has uh, a really interesting insight within that sport. Um, so, yeah, I do thank you for coming on and, and being so transparent about it as well. Yeah, no, and, and, and again, thanks for having me and, and, and keep up the great work on uh, on this podcast. I will try. Appreciate it. And uh, yeah, thanks again, mate. Cheers. I hope you enjoyed that open and honest conversation with Bradley Skeynes about physiotherapy in F1. And we wish him and Max Verstappen the best of luck in this F1 season. Next week on the show, we have Amy Arundel, a physical therapist and biomechanist at the Brooklyn Nets NBA team for you to look forward to. If you're a regular listener of the show or just discovering us now for the first time, then please hit subscribe to show your support and to ensure that you catch all of our episodes when they are released. Give us a follow on Instagram at informperformance or on Twitter at informpod for all news updates and to see educational infographics from our sponsor, Vild Performance. As usual, you can find anything that we draw reference to in today's episode at the show notes, which you can find at our website, informperformance.com. This episode of the Informed Performance podcast has been sponsored by Vald Performance. Today's Vald concept explained is the eccentric utilization ratio, the EUR. The eccentric utilization ratio is the ratio of counter movement jump to squat jump performance. It's been suggested as a useful indicator of stretch shorten cycle or lower body power performance in athletes. Jump height and peak power have previously been used to calculate the eccentric utilization ratio, and it's been suggested that an ideal EUR is 1.1, in which the CMJ score would be approximately 10% greater than that of the squat jump score, 
So this would suggest that the athlete has an effective stretch shorten cycle in comparison to their lower body vertical power in a static position. Most athletes will have an EUR of one or greater and can generally jump higher during a CMJ than a squat jump. And this is mainly due to the storage of elastic energy and increased muscle activity that occurs during the eccentric phase of the CMJ. A higher EUR indicates that an athlete has a greater capacity to store potential energy in their elastic components of the tendons and muscle, and then release this energy when the tendon and muscle is shortened. Whereas on the flip side, a lower EUR could indicate that an athlete has a lower capacity to store potential energy in their elastic components, so again the muscle and tendons, and express that energy when the tendon and muscle is shortened. So EUR testing results may help strength and conditioning coaches and rehab professionals be a little bit more prescriptive for an athlete's power output limitations and the programming for them. Again, I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Bradley Skeynes and another educational feature from our sponsor, Vild Performance. You've been listening to the Informed Performance podcast with me, Andy McDonald. Tune in next week for more performance and sports medicine insights. And thank you for listening.